0: Hey, folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. from 11fs this is fintech insider news today we bring you elon musk and tesla buys 1.5 billion dollars worth of bitcoin sending prices skyrocketing yolt open up open banking to the mortgage market and how best to spend investor cash monzo klarna and millions all intend to show us so let's see all this and much much more on today's show Welcome to episode 502 of FinTech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host for the day, Kate Moody, Customer Strategy Lead at 11FS. How's it going, Kate?
1: Yeah, it's good. It's actually this is the first time in a while recording this show. That it's actually still been light outside, recording it. So I don't know. It just feels like the spring is coming. Obviously, this is very UK-focused. Sorry, um, but yeah, spring is coming. So that's always always nice and kind of helps boost the mood.
0: Sorry if you are in the Southern Hemisphere, Dexter, um, and anybody else that may be listening in the <laughs> Southern Hemisphere. The, all, all 3% of you that listen from Australia, we love you, of course. Um, but yes, we are excited in the UK to have spring about to spring. And of course, uh, as, as Brits, we're not, we're not alone. Um, we are joined by, albeit remotely, some amazing Yes, uh, making a fintech insider debut. We have uh, Nick Can, who's CEO of Yolt and Yolt Technology Services. Welcome to Fintech Insider. Uh, you're joining us from possibly the most exotic location we've ever had, Madagascar. Um, big week for Yolt, which we'll get into shortly. But great to have you with us. How are you, and how's Madagascar?
2: Madagascar is very, very nice. It's uh, well, it's late here, so it's not as bright as in the UK. But it's 24 degrees today. It's down 5 degrees on yesterday. Uh, But I can't complain. Uh, Wife and kids are back in Wales and they're complaining about ice and snow. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, that's quite different, quite different. There's a lot to unpack there, but I'm sure we'll get to it in time. Thank you so much, Nick, for being with us. And making a welcome return is Ryan Lewis, who is the author of the Cryptocurrency Revolution and co-developer of Altcoin Portfolio Tracker, Count My Crypto. Um, so welcome back to the show. Big week in the world of cryptocurrency that we're going to dig into. So it's great to have you back with us. How are you doing?
3: Thanks. I'm really good. I wish I was in Madagascar. Sadly, I'm in Torquay, which is rather less glamorous. And yes, we have some snow and ice, but I'm thrilled to be back on the show. And yeah, it's been a mega week. I mean, it sort of always is in crypto, but good week to be back.
0: Yeah, the news feels like it's compounding somehow, faster than the prices are. It's it's kind of hard to keep up with it all. And let's just jump right in. Uh, so this story comes from the block, but pretty much everywhere else you looked, uh, if you're into fintech or finance at all. Uh, Tesla has, says it has bought $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin. It disclosed this in an SEC filing published this past Monday. Uh, in addition to the Bitcoin purchase, Tesla expects to begin accepting Bitcoin as a form of payment for products. In the near future, which is a sentence we'll come back to, Bitcoin's price has been soaring on the back of the news. Um, it's currently trading more than about 10%. I think at the time uh, that we're recording this, it's somewhere in the $45,000, $46,000 mark, um, and it may have pushed up as high as 48000 Who knows where it will be by the time this is published on Monday. Uh, earlier this month, Musk changed his Twitter bio to mention Bitcoin and said, I think Bitcoin is really on the verge of getting broad acceptance by the sort of conventional finance people. Um, and maybe, um, Rian, that's a good place to start. Do you think that's true? Is Bitcoin growing up? Is it getting accepted by conventional finance people? Or you know, is it too dirty, too, uses too much energy What for a green company like uh, Tesla?
3: Well, um, those are both really interesting points. And obviously, while Tesla is the um, biggest story in town, I'm sure everyone on the call must be aware of today's news, which is that BNY Mellon um, is going to be offering a custodial solution for Bitcoin and potentially other crypto assets. And bearing in mind that this is America's oldest bank, I think that kind of answers your question. It really speaks to your point about traditional finance. Not just accepting Bitcoin, but jumping in with both feet. Again, in the last 24 hours, the MasterCard announcement. And that is significant. I won't talk about that at length, but it's significant because they're not just talking about accepting um, Bitcoin payments that are cashed out to fiat, but providing end to end crypto services between consumers and merchants um, on their network. So, in terms of traditional finance, um, being open to the idea of cryptos, I think we see it in front of us right now. And um, to be honest, when Elon Musk said this, he was saying something that I think most people within the industry could already see was happening. It's hitting the mainstream headlines this week and in the last couple of weeks, to the extent the Daily Telegraph of all publications was running a story um, with a headline, what is Dogecoin and where can I buy it? <laughs> well, yeah, Flashback to 2014, 2015 um you know people would have said you were crazy if you for, for
0: what is dogecoin yeah, they, yeah. of course they would been, they they would have thought we were crazy uh probably still do for wondering what dogecoin is um kate i want to bring in you in on this one because um i think wh- where does this land for you in that sort of crossing the chasm uh worldview it, it has it crossed over or is it still a distraction of nerds that just happens to be taking up far too much attention
1: um, I mean, I definitely think we're in the process of that transition happening. I think, obviously, you know, as Ryan touched on, there's a whole variety of different announcements this week that I think kind of relate to slightly different customer groups. So, obviously, the massive news for Tesla in terms of them diversifying in terms of their investments, and we've had lots of stories recently about you know, other companies looking to see Bitcoin or crypto as a way of, you know, as a store of value almost for their investments. But we're also seeing this emerging conversation about, you know, cryptocurrencies as a as a means of exchange, you know. Mainly focused, I think, more at the moment around kind of the stablecoin space. So this kind of split between you know, changes in cryptocurrencies, more traditional cryptocurrencies around like Bitcoin, for example, and then the emergence of stablecoins. I think is just all coming together to build this momentum around uh, crypto as a as a space, both in terms of a store of value for investors, but also as a emerging kind of payments rail for for both customers and businesses alike.
0: I think that's interesting, Kate, that, that that crossing the chasm theme that is, is not just for Bitcoin. Um, we also saw the Chicago Mercantile Exchange has published uh, ETH futures contracts for the first time and now sells those. And it was, of course, that having a regulated product that institutional investors can buy, but also working with one of the biggest banks in the world like BNY Mellon to look after those funds safely um, really does give a confidence and credibility to something that was seen as as kind of wild and wacky for, for quite some time. Nick, I'm, I'm interested in, in your views on this as you look at it from an open banking and fintech landscape. Do you think that Bitcoin solves a real problem for people beyond speculation? Is it still just very much in that space?
2: Uh, first of all, you know, um, my wife was having a go at me because we missed the boat back in 2014 when it was only $13,000. And she she told me we should have invested in it. But clearly, uh, there, this was a, an investment opportunity. I think that from an open banking perspective, uh, people are looking at connecting multiple accounts. They're looking at having a view of all their finances in one place. And Clearly, we would welcome having, you know, a connection to a cryptocurrency account and then surfacing it to the consumer every day that they're checking their accounts. It clearly has a role and it would fit. I think that when we look at the Yolt uh, customer engagement, we have quite a few requests from people to say, I want to connect my, um, my cryptocurrency, but not all of it is available at the moment. But certainly it's becoming more and more common in the requests we're seeing through.
0: That's a, a, an insightful point, Nick. Thank you so much for seeing that. It makes sense to me that somebody would want to see all of their exposures in, in one place. Ryan, we've seen that obviously Square added crypto. They were one of the first to do it. And then also, not just for allowing their consumers to buy it, but also adding to their balance sheet. And then, of course, PayPal. We've also seen Visa now start to make announcements about their support, not just for Bitcoin, but also potentially stable coins. MasterCard now making announcements. BNY Mellon, Twitter, and it seems like everybody announcing that they might do a thing with crypto again. Are we not heading into mania? Like, is this not another bubble? We've seen bubbles before.
3: Well, I think that that's one of the um, theories or accusations that lots of people like to fling around. And yes, you can look at these astonishing price rises and in some cases falls And people see that as evidence of bubble territory, volatility, whatever. But I think now it's with this proven digital scarcity and this sudden demand from institutions and from companies. I mean, we've even had rumors about Apple this week and there was talk from Twitter it's not surprising that with a very limited supply, that there is real demand, which is potentially going to force the price higher. Of course, what comes up can come down. We're, anyone who's been in the space for any length of time is prepared for this volatility. But I think it's something that we're now seeing the mainstream media very split on this. A lot of people, both in the mainstream media and within the trad finance space, are starting to come on to sort of realise what the value of having this kind of settlement system that isn't tied to government-issued currencies, the real value of it. So we are seeing people starting to appreciate this a little bit more. But the people who find negatives with it really, really do find negatives. I, I don't know if you saw the Nouriel Roubini interview with Coindesk TV. It was, um, it, you know, the levels of um, claims of bubbles and so on was was quite fascinating to see. I think Bitcoin inspires as much hatred as it does loyalty. <laughs> I think there is a, it's a fair point to say that the price rises, the price movements do scare people and they can go in both directions.
0: What goes up can come down. Down. and as always do never invest anything you can't afford to lose um and do seek advice from a professional if you're thinking about um investing in anything that's speculative we really really hope you are looking after yourself folks out there and i think that's a really good point point, and, and i love that point about that there are so many that if you if people hate bitcoin they seem to really really hate it there's there's very little middle ground with it but the striking thing for me is uh, the comments that the senior bankers have made historically if i look at where the ceo of JP Morgan was um, sort of three four years ago versus the comments now it's kind of moved on a little bit and everybody seemed to have an issue with oh it has no intrinsic value oh it can't be used for payments but as realized since well actually it plays this other role um, as societies are printing money it's this thing that seems to s- at least keep its value if not potentially rise in value um, and may even just be a symptom of the nature of the market and that's that's neither good nor bad it, it, it simply is um, and that's that's an exciting Thing to think about, uh, Kate, um, as as our resident um, sort of customer uh, nosy person, what do you think <laughs> about these these different human reactions to it? D- is, is there something in that? Um, and and yeah, how, how do we unpack all of that?
1: Um, oh yeah, I think there's always going to be anxiety about things which are new, like new systems tried and tested. You we um, I was having a conversation uh, not that long ago actually, where I was talking. We were just talking about you know the crypto system versus traditional bank payment rail system. And you know, we've now reached a stage where we move our money through banks, through payment providers. And we don't think about, as the ordinary customer, we don't think about what happens behind that. It's built on trust. It's built on you know a, a past track record of things not going wrong, things not breaking. So um, actually, you know, the average system doesn't have any more understanding of how ordinary payments work as they would do as to, you know, how crypto payments could work. So I think it's totally understandable that people have anxieties. I do think those are going to subside over time if we can start to mature the way in which cryptocurrencies are used. And I think that's part of what's most interesting about this Tesla announcement is that they've not just announced they're going to invest in Bitcoin. They've also, alongside that, said that they're going to look to allow customers to buy in in Bitcoin and they're going to kind of start accepting that as a as a form of payment so they're not just seeing it as an investment that could go up or could go down they're trying to really build or they're claiming that they're going to build an ecosystem for their customers where they can you know buy and transact from
0: Tesla in that way. There's this, this is almost those two different things, isn't there? There's the Tesla, the company that had to hold on to US dollars, which which holding on to US dollars with any amount of inflation and the amount of US dollars being printed is probably not something you want to do at the moment. So that having a different asset that maybe holds its value better just makes a lot of sense. And then there's actually my customers might want this too, and they might want to work with it in some way. But cases you pointed out Bitcoin's not the only answer for payments. In fact, far from it, the the emergence of stablecoins has really started to see another type of payments rail really emerge. Um, I want to circle back to this, uh, Rian, very quickly before we leave this story. I don't know if you saw that um, Nigeria was debating potentially banning Bitcoin. Um, There are rumors that the US government looked at banning Bitcoin in 2014 and quickly came to the conclusion that that was actually impossible because of the nature of how it works. And it was far better to regulate it into legitimacy than Than ban the thing entirely, but as an economy that's seeing um, rapid inflation, um, do you think that there's an almost sort of bottom-up movement of Bitcoin as the swift for everybody else or the store of value for for places outside of the Western world, not just as a speculative asset for the West?
3: I do think so. I mean, um, I'm, I'm sure you remember that in the early days, people were talking about using Bitcoin for smaller remittances in different places. But I think here, as things are now, we're seeing a lot of interest in Bitcoin in countries where maybe there is greater inflation. And those governments and those currencies have more to fear from Bitcoin, really, because it becomes a more valid choice for people who want to hold on to the value for um, of what they have. So that's something that's always struck me talking to Bitcoiners around the world over the years. Um, it tends to be people who come from countries where not necessarily there's high inflation now, but which have suffered inflation shocks in the past. You have a greater willingness to accept that there might be an asset other than your own government's state-issued currency that will help you hang on to the value of it. And people maybe seem a little bit less scared of Bitcoin because maybe they're a little bit scared by the thought of having all their eggs in one basket with their own fiat currency. But certainly, it's a very difficult issue for governments around the world, especially not just with Bitcoin, but with things like um, DM, what used to be Libra, Facebook's um, proposed currency, when that was going to be an independently priced stablecoin, not a per country stablecoin. Countries had exactly the same doubts about that. I don't even think it's so much that Bitcoin is un- and other cryptos unregulated. It's more the fact that people are suddenly going to have a choice of using something that isn't the government's own currency that's putting the frighteners on people. And you can understand that.
0: Indeed. Well, um, I think um, there is a, a common myth, of course, that Bitcoin is quote unquote, unregulated. I think Bitcoin isn't owned by a regulator or a government, but actually in most jurisdictions, it's, it's quite Significantly regulated. Um, so in in the US by the CFTC, it's a commodity, but also it's uh, subject to uh, anti money laundering rules. And in Europe, under Five MLD, um, under the Anti Money Laundering Directive Five, it is of course subject to the same controls as well. So, um, but I, but I know that's not what you meant, but I, I think it is. Important for people who are listening inside of banks to realize that it's it is absolutely regulated. And I love those points about um, actually in a world where we may actually see inflation coming, there is a school of economic theory that says the inflation dividend of of China in a world where uh, we are now seeing uh, less globalization and more protectionist trade policies and we are also potentially seeing massive stimulus in the U.S., could inflation be around the corner? And if we end up in in, in that world, uh, suddenly the conversation starts to change again. So it's going to be interesting times, and we didn't even cover the subject of decentralized finance, DeFi, non-fungible tokens, and everything that's happening in that space. Um, if you've not gone down that rabbit hole and, and you are listening, I would encourage you to Google non-fungible tokens and look at NBA Top Um That actually might be the first breakthrough thing happening in crypto. So uh, let's just see. But that that does us for this story. I'm going to move us to the next one because uh, fintech never sleeps as well as crypto never sleeps. And uh, the next story is about, well, it's about YOLT. Um, so, YOLT Technology Services has expanded its account information services to support UK mortgage lenders, the first step in a move to a more wide ranging model of open finance. This facilitates the secure transmission of an individual's transactional data across to a regulated lender with that individual's permission. The new transaction data sets will support mortgage lenders to make uh, faster, better decisions on credit worthiness and affordability, as well as aiding the process of customer identification. Mortgage lenders will be able to use the uh, account information services to view a home buyer's income, speed up identity screening and onboarding, um, and make more informed credit decisions by taking into consideration all spending, such as transaction activity, Netflix subscriptions, and not just existing credit commitments. Nicholas, naturally, we coming to you first on this one. Congratulations on the launch. Can you tell us a little bit more about it?
2: Thank you very much. I think um, it's um, it's a very exciting time for us. I was having a conversation a few months ago with one of those digital lenders and going through the process myself of um, filling up the form. And I was thinking, I have most of the answers to the questions that you're asking. Why don't we do something together? And I think that For anybody who's gone through the process of filling multiple forms and how painful it is and finding the right documents, that seems like a logical extension. So your technology service at the basis, you know, have um, a third party license for AIS and PIS. And what we do then is exactly like you said, we do an integration with the mortgage provider. We ask for the permission from the person applying for the, the mortgage, and then we connect the accounts um, directly to the to the mortgage provider. But at the same time, what we do at YTS is we categorize the data because we have a, a transaction engine and we recognize most of the, the transaction. We categorize it in the right way. So like you mentioned, the income, you know, of uh, your subscription, all the bills, and we give that in a pre-formatted way to the mortgage provider. And then it's up to them to make the decision. But suddenly you have contracted the the, the contracting time of, of going through this whole process in a much shorter way and it hopefully make it less painful for the customer. So that was the whole idea here.
0: It's crazy to me that in, in 2021, uh, we still have to try and create PDFs of our incomes and then send those PDFs. And then somebody at the lender has to run through all of that and identify what that's doing to your monthly income. It feels like work for the person sending the information, work for the person receiving the information that just seems entirely unnecessary. So thank you so much for doing this. Um, I think that would be super, super helpful. Um, I, Kate, what what are your thoughts here as somebody who's just been through a similar process?
1: Yeah, I'm applying for a mortgage at the moment as well. So, yeah, this is very – this is like bringing back painful memories just thinking about it now um, of of some of those forms, yeah. I I definitely agree. I think the mortgage space is is in need of help. Um, I suppose the thing I'm really interested to see is how – you know, an open finance solution, I really hope it can solve for this, but you know, how it uh, will solve for kind of multi-person households. So, you know, can you connect into my accounts? Can you connect into my my husband's accounts? My husband won't let me connect into his accounts, so you'll probably have more, more insight into his spending than I do. Um, so, uh, yeah, but that, I think kind of understanding that that dynamic, I think, would or how that could work, I'd, I'd be really interested
2: in your perspective, Nick. I, th- I think that um, when you look at the product, uh, it, it's very suitable for people with, for example, multiple accounts and multiple income streams. So I have an account with bank A or bank B, and then I see some of my consulting revenue coming in bank A and some other in bank B. And we're doing this aggregation and this organization of the data. And in a similar way, Kate, then you can imagine that bank A can be you, but bank B can be your husband. And we're providing a place where we aggregate all of that. Of course, you have to tell us who, who's paying what in the decision, uh, to apply for the mortgage itself, but we can certainly create an environment where the collection of the data is easier and from the lender perspective this is verified information so there's no mistake going through the process and and hopefully you know we'll make the whole thing much more palatable and probably faster also instead of spending you know 15-20 minutes filling multiple forms of finding where your pdf of your uh, last income was what was your yearly income where's your p45 all of that can be aggregated in a simple easy way
1: yeah, I'm. Um, I'm sure we'll come to talk about you know like open finance and how customers have understood open finance. But one of the things I struggled with the most when I was so- sending that information across was the idea that you just attach your financial life you know to an email and hit send, or you upload it into a portal that you've never used before. So, um, I yeah, the idea that that can be done through open finance in a way that you, know, you assume is going to be much more secure as well. It's it's not just about the the time saved; it's also about kind of that um, security of the you know, that information is so valuable and so sensitive and um, treating that securely is, is so
0: important. And nick i'm I'm interested in your perspective as well because the open banking in in the uk had a had a bit of a slow start outside obviously of of the kind of the account aggregation, especially with um some of the some of the major lenders. Do you think that actually having this value for something that's so core to their business like mortgage lending that's potentially going to help them reduce cost and 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 lend more a little bit faster a little bit more efficiently do, do you think that sort of changes the business case conversation or do you still think there's a way to go?
2: No, I think that um, so you, you might think open banking was a bit slow, but you currently have over 3 million people using open banking in diverse applications in the UK. And certainly, I see that as an acceleration of the process. We're touching something that is critical, that is so core. I was explaining recently to my team that we in the UK are obsessed about buying houses. Everybody has some project of buying a house somewhere. And the best, the best job we can do to help people in their finance is to help them navigate that maze of acquiring a house. And, and what is easier than, than, than to help them understand their finance. So that's part of the YOLT mission. But the other side of thing is when we organize the data in a meaningful way. And like you said, Kate, in a, in a very safe way, because we're talking about very high levels of security between the data that is transiting through YTS to the bank itself people don't need to lay eyes on different pieces of paper. We give aggregated data that goes into calculated formulas. Suddenly, what you have is a more uh, streamlined process. And going back to your point, Simon, we probably can consider significant savings uh, from banking perspective. You know, when you have manual underwriting um, from the mortgage originator, transferring data to the bank itself, re-inputting it, uh, making decision all of that can be streamlined in the process and savings could be made across the board.
0: Uh, Brian, I want to bring you in on, on this as well. What are your perspectives on the whole open banking space uh, as you look at it?
3: Well, it's it's an interesting point because, um, as you know, my day job is actually as a developer. So I think about data all the time. And every time I look at the way we have been handling data traditionally, absolutely terrifies me. And I think the idea that this data can be handled in a secure way, only what is needed at the time, as Nick describes, is a really appealing um, element of open finance, because it means that we don't have these huge honeypots like the Equifax hack, for example, where credit agencies end up sitting on great piles of data that they don't necessarily need to know about you at any time. And they're a huge target for hackers, of course. So the idea that the data can just flow to where it's needed, when it's needed, in a secure way is amazing. And of course, it's just opening up this whole new application layer for people to build applications on that make people's lives easier that we couldn't do before. And I I do think it probably was a slow start, but obviously it's gained huge momentum now. And you can see exactly why it probably got off to a slow start because the legacy banks probably were quite reluctant to you know, to lose their monopoly here. But I think it's been an absolutely fantastic thing for the consumer and also for developers as well, because there are so many opportunities to build interesting applications on top of the data that's already there.
0: And that sort of um, kind of confidence and that decentralization of the data, but then also the automation that comes out of the back of it, Nick, is, is just the beginning. Um, I, I guess there are other use cases. What are you excited by as you look at um, as uh, to where this could go? Do you think we're going to see a adoption of this in more processes outside of mortgages?
2: I certainly do hope so, because I think that uh, I'm a big believer in data ownership, being given to the customer himself. And having your, your own data under your control and you being able to share it for the right application to save you time and give you market transparency is probably one of the best applications that we can hope for with open banking. Now, beyond this you know, initial application around mortgage, of course, we all aspire towards open finance. You know, your data transiting from one place to the other under your control, so everything is always... This is one of the biggest misconceptions. People think that open banking means um, enterprise can call your data without your permission. No, that's not the case. Every time, we need the absolute explicit permission permission from the consumer to access the data and we have to explain where the data is going and they give on the logins and and this is happening. So I think that we're getting towards a place where the data is more fluid, but also remains under the strict control of the consumer. And they can erase it, ask for the erasure of the data at any time, and this will happen. So... um, to go back to your question, Simon, I think mortgage is the first step, but there's so many places where this could be applied, your pension, your uh, your investments, your your insurance, everything where data is taken into account for financial purposes is fair game in my mind.
0: And, and something that um, we didn't cover and spend a lot of time on, but I think is is massively powerful over the long time horizon, is uh, you can prove your identity this way. Um, so historically, I had to provide proof of address and and proof of um, who I am with different pieces of data. Like people using open banking data to prove I am who I say I am. There are so many use cases for that. It's it's just uh, it's just phenomenal beyond beyond the outside world. It's one of the things that gets lost, I think, quite often, and we lost it too. Um, so. Uh, Nick if you can give me 30 seconds on that piece and then I will have to move us on
2: (laughs) no I completely agree um so one of the most difficult thing I had to do when I arrived in the UK is to prove my identity, and I had to open a bank account. And nowadays, if you come to Yield and you open a Yield account, we'll do it remotely where we take a selfie or a live picture of the person. We'll verify that across multiple fraud databases to make sure that you are who you say you are. And this becomes then the first layer of verifying your identity. Then we can use that on other places where people say, oh, Yield verified the identity of this person. So we can take Yolt's credential to take it forward. So exactly like you say, your, your identity become digitalized, and then it can be leveraged into different places. Of course, the control of the user of that identity always stay with you. It's on your Yolt app, it's within the control of your um, application, and it's you who decide how to use that data. Fantastic,
0: Nick. Thank you so much. Well, on that note, we are just going to take a quick pause here whilst we hear from our sponsors.
1: This episode is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com.
0: Thank you so much to our sponsors. All right, on with the news. And uh, this story, again, comes from Fenextra, And this is about our good friends at Monzo, who are going to raise another 50 million pounds sterling. So um, they are raising funds from existing shareholders and one new investor, Silicon Valley firm Octahedron Capital. Um, which is a good name. The new capital, which is an extension of the previous round, takes the amount raised by the Challenger Bank during the pandemic to £175 million. Uh, the top-up is the second to Monza's initial £60 million round from June last year, following another £60 million capital ejection in December. The new funds come at the discounted valuation of £1.24 billion. Pounds sterling. Uh, the new CEO at the helm, Monzo's moved to cut out interest rate freebies for currency transfers, introduce paying services, and release two new premium accounts. Kate, I'm going to come to you first on this story. Uh, what are your thoughts?
1: I think, I mean, obviously, it's, it feels like only yesterday that we were talking about Monzo's last raise. So yeah, they've certainly been busy. I sort of wonder from an organizational point of view how, um, how time consuming this is for them if they're just in this constant cycle of, of, of raising and, and fundraising. Um, It's very distracting. They're trying to juggle a lot at the moment, obviously with the departure of Tom, and then the the sort of step up of the new CEO role. I think they've also announced today that they've introduced a new CEO for their US business. So lots of lots of change happening. Um, And as you say, they're kind of in an interesting transition period of introducing these new paid services. Sort of hard to get a sense of you know what the kind of overall strategy is there in terms of whether they're trying to bring on brand new customers or convert their current customer base across into the paid services as a as a current customer who doesn't pay for any of their services You know, i'm receiving a lot of emails at the moment where they're pushing all of these new features at me which i think is an interesting thing to balance as a as a fintech you know as, as a brand you know you're going out to all of your customers who were previously very happy and dangling a load of features in front of them that they can't access um, and sort of creating a slightly antagonistic relationship between you know the, the free customers and the service levels they receive and the paid customers and the, the access they have so yeah i think definitely a really interesting sort of coming of age moment for them
0: and what's interesting to me kate on, on exactly that point is um how many high street banks are charging a lot more than the premium price that monzo would charge you for a arguably a service that's not as good as the free service from, from Monzo on a day-to-day basis. So there's, there's definitely um, a difficult balancing act, and I, and I wouldn't envy them um, for, for trying to pull this off. um, Rhian, um what, what are your thoughts as you look at this? Do, uh, how do you feel about the, the sort of the paying for an account? Is there a consumer willingness for any of this sort of thing?
3: I think it's interesting whichever country you look at because in Britain, um, people generally are not used to paying um, or not used to paying very much for bank accounts, but then maybe they don't expect features in return. Um, but Monzo, particularly, is interesting for me because uh, when I um, opened my account with Monzo, it was before it was its started offering banking services. And it's to me, it's a fintech that's become more and more like a bank. And I think product differentiation between Monzo and banks is much less clear now. They're obviously competing as a bank, whereas before they were competing as a really useful payments app. I think it's really interesting, this thing that um, we everything has to be a bank. You know, when we talk about money and um, digital finance, it's just a, a way of, tra- of transferring value, isn't it? And It's like we can't get away from this idea of things having to be a repository for money where you have services layered on top, whereas maybe you don't, in fact, want to use those services and pay for it. And a lot of people, I think, probably do just want a bare bones um, but nicely functioning digital service.
0: And I think that's such an interesting point. I think the the kind of the achievements of a lot of these brands in solving real customer problems as a fintech versus the the sort of the the cost benefit of having a banking license and being able to do that is kind of interesting. Um, you know, in the, in the US, um, it's a different market because with the Durban Amendment, you can make a lot more money from just being a card and an app because the interchange level is so so much higher. Much much harder in different parts of the world. And um, our own Sarah Kachansky published a blog post this past weekend on um, there's a lot of banks that get ignored in this space as well people when they bring up challenger banks often don't mention the oak norths or the tinkoff banks or or even new bank who are quietly doing amazing things um nick what, what are your thoughts as you look at that maybe there are many paths to solve customer problems and many paths to profitability
2: I think that I, I certainly look at the path of making customer pay, but that's not in our DNA. We, we originated from a free proposition. Uh, and our mission at the moment is to help consumer make sense of their finance. So I don't see us going into a paid direction uh, anytime soon. Saying that, I think that, um, Monzo is one of the first partner that we have integrated into, and giving you a full view of your finance between your traditional bank or the neo banks of this world is part of our mission. And we certainly do see the increased take up of those neo banks into the connection. But at the same time, we don't see the decrease of traditional banks. So somehow the neo bank are piling up on top of existing bank. And it's, it's like a coexistence. Not nobody has taken over yet, uh, the relationship, I believe at this stage. While what we're hoping to achieve here is to give the consumer fuel view of, the expenses, their income, and hopefully doing a better job um, than uh, each each silo would do differently and separately. So, our mission here is really to help our consumer orchestrate their finance rather than try to catalyze them in one direction or other.
0: Yeah, indeed, there are still so many problems to be solved out there, Brian. Um, I want to throw this to you as you look at Monza. People still love that brand. Do you think they have some brand permission to maybe start charging more and even just be upfront and say, "Hey, we need to charge you for this thing that you love because we want to stay in business." Uh, you know, could they be that bold? Could they? Could they wear that?
3: I actually think so, because it's not all about fees. It's not all a race to the bottom. If um, a brand is able to offer a great digital service that other brands either don't offer or they're not perceived as offering this service, then I think people are certainly prepared to pay for it. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, although in Britain, we're not particularly used to paying for bank accounts, this is gradually starting to come in. And most, People who have a premium bank account will certainly be paying a small amount for that. So, I in my mind, Monzo should just be really, really clear about what their proposition is, put it to customers, and let customers choose and see if it's worth it. I mean, I think they offer a great service personally. Whether people are prepared to pay for it, I don't know. But one thing that does tend to not be successful is companies introducing charges by the back door or increasing charges. I think you use the word bold. I I think that probably is the key here. If people are upfront about it, people will pay. People pay for great service. There's no getting around that.
0: And I think it's interesting when you look at the history of them as an organization, they pulled off the transition from prepaid card to bank um, and got their 500,000 customers into being 5 million bank customers. Um, I think that's a super interesting transition. And then when they had to introduce ATM fees, they sort of said to their community, here are our three choices, which should we go for, and made it a conversation. And they almost pioneered that way of doing things. Meanwhile, in the background, know, Starling has quietly gone from strength to strength, and there are many other stories around the world that possibly possibly don't get as much focus. But the one thing, brand um, that Monzo can probably still hang its hand, hat on is that customer loyalty trust that they've built with that customer, and hopefully that weather's them through the storm. Um, I'm going to move us to the next story, because I'm sure we could talk about this one forever. Um, but uh, there are just so much fintech news at the moment. Uh, this one is about Klarna opening its first bank account, speaking of competition in the space, and eyes a $500 million fundraise. So, um, of course, Buy Now, Pay Later uh, pioneered. Klarna is launching its first consumer banking account in Germany. A Klarna bank account will come with a Visa debit card, which can also be connected to Google Pay and Apple Pay. Users will also be able to use budgeting tools available in the Klana app to track, categorize, and analyze all of their everyday spending. The launch follows rumors that the firm is closing in on that $500 million fundraise, giving the company an outlandish $30 billion valuation, triple the price tag applied at its last funding round in September, and Klarna has yet to comment on the speculation, but if approved, it will mean that the firm has raised a total of $1.3 billion in the past 12 months alone. This comes the week after the FCA announced plans to regulate the buy-now-pay-later space for the security of customers. So we were on brand permission, Kate. Um, what do you think the brand permission with, with a bank account in Germany in particular um, for the likes of Klarna might be?
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting that they've chosen to to go for Germany. Um, I think, obviously, they hold their main licence, I think, in Sweden, if I, if I understand correctly, but they have this sort of partnership in Germany with, with raising the sort of the savings marketplace. Um, you know, Germany, obviously, has other fintechs, uh, kind of obviously N26 being uh, the most prominent, um, but it's maybe not quite as competitive yet as some of the other markets, like the UK, for example. And obviously, Klarna in the UK at the moment is receiving quite a lot of bad press uh, around kind of this greater push for, for regulations so yeah it kind of makes sense to me as a as a market to start especially given that they've articulated that they have this aim of linking up these new features with that savings uh, product that they've already taken to market um, and actually i mean i've i've been critical of Buy now pay later in general and kind of kind of in the past but actually i do think that this, move towards offering. And we've just talked about how not everyone should feel they have to come a bank. So I guess this flies in the face of that slightly. But actually, I do think that uh, having some of that banking functionality will enable Klarna to address some of the issues that its critics have, you know, that actually people are making these credit or taking on these credit undertakings, in addition to their other sort of financial uh, systems and their other financial information. Actually, Klarna, if they can create an ecosystem, they can help customers to understand what they can afford in a, in a more meaningful way than I think they're currently able to at the moment.
0: It's an interesting customer adoption strategy that they've kind of used the the point of sale and the checkout and removing friction there as a way to stop winning customers and get control of their spending and potentially do more. And And as you say, Kate, it could be an interesting pivot point. But of course, buy now pay later purchases nearly quadrupled last year to £2.7 billion in the UK alone and and countless billions of dollars in the US as well. Um, Nick, as you look at this, are people able to really understand um, their finances? Do you think a, a service like this would, would help them do it better?
2: I think I certainly do see the benefit of the service. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you can't be. You can stop being worried about debt accumulation in this country and whether people really understand that they're getting into debt. I think that the buy now pay later is so easy in access that sometimes you forget how much commitment you're making. And I think this is really, I would welcome something very responsible in that approach. So. I go back to my open banking example, is to analyze whether this is something that the customer can afford and not put them in a difficult situation before moving them into this buy now, pay later uh, type of proposition. But I certainly do see why it's so valuable. Uh, And if the interest rate is, you know, uh, reasonable, then it's certainly a good service for the customer.
0: And I think that um, kind of mix and match of kind of their ability to acquire customers and then potentially offer a compelling product is powerful. Where do you think the um, kind of upcoming regulation uh, in the UK around buy now, pay later might come into this conversation, Kate? Do you think that impacts the German market? And also, is there something about the German market typically operating in cash and not really preferring um, debt-based products that might be key here?
1: Yeah, well, I guess, yeah, the UK and Germany are obviously... Very different markets. I suppose you know, Germany has demonstrated through N26 that there is an appetite for, for fintech for kind of digital propositions. So it will be interesting to see, as you say, someone given that kind of wider um, population trend towards cash, you know, whether they roll out their their, their features in a slightly different order. And they've not been very specific yet about precisely what they're going to offer in, in what order. Um, but I think it makes sense for them to diversify away from the buy now pay later. Obviously, they've had huge success with that. Um, but they've kind of always talked more broadly about wanting to be, I think I can't remember quite how they described it, but they've talked about wanting to be a sort of shopping ecosystem rather than just a lending ecosystem. So it makes sense that they're they're looking to do that. I think we've seen a firm do something quite similar in the US where they've also branched out into offering savings propositions just a safeguard, I guess, if things crop up from a regulatory or brand perspective that might impede their so far astronomical growth on the
3: on the lending side.
0: Okay, really interesting watch. Rian, what are your thoughts?
3: Well, I was fascinated by the fact that um, it's that they've chosen Germany because I've spent um, a lot of time living and working in Germany, and as you've just mentioned, the cultural attitudes to spending are so different there that um, it's. If you'd talked about a buy now, pay later company, you know, establishing a bank somewhere, I really wouldn't have thought it was Germany just because of the connotations of credit there. It's really noticeable. Like you'd never see somebody walking into a German supermarket and paying for their groceries with a credit card, even though. Of course you can, but people just don't. They use a debit card or they use cash. So the idea of a credit-focused product, choosing Germany for the rollout of services, even if they're not credit services, I found was absolutely fascinating. But um, I think there are lots of perception problems, aren't they, with products like this? I think a lot of consumers maybe don't realize that they're currently not regulated um, and I think it, they're great products, but as Nick said, data is key here and people actually understanding what they can spend and uh, Klarna is providing, going to provide these tools to help people understand what their obligations are, then that's a good thing. But they've raised so much money, it's hard to see that this is not going to be successful at some level. And it'd be interesting to see what services they roll out first.
0: Let's watch and see. All right. Well, um, there are so much fintech news this week. There's a lot of stories we didn't have time to cover. Um, So as we get towards the end of the show, we're just going to round up some of those stories that we didn't have, but still deserve a shout out. Kate, do you want to start us out?
1: Sure. Yeah, our first story comes from Finextra. Onfido returns a £5 million grant to the Business Banking Bailout Fund. So, Onfido was one of the Pool E grant recipients of the RBS Bailout Fund in August last year. The £5 million award was intended to push the company into the know-your-business market. The £5 million returned will be allocated to the Capability and Innovation Fund, or CIF as it's fondly known, and held in trust until later deployment. The body says other awardees, which included Virgin Money, Clearbank, Ebury, Market Finance and Kodat, are pressing ahead with their commitments. Other companies to have bailed on their commitments in the past include Nationwide and Metro Bank, who collectively returned £100 million in grant money last year. So, yeah, I got a sense of deja vu reading this story. I feel like we've been here before. The main plus point that the the CIF team seemed to call out in their press release was at least, you know, they now because of the issues with nationwide and Metro bank do have a sort of well set up process for giving money back. If Mm -hmm. you, if you can't meet your commitments, which obviously is one positive way of looking at it. The timeframes here do feel a bit different versus what happened with nationwide and and Metro bank last year. There was, you know, on Fido were only awarded the funds relatively recently and it feels a bit more like a, a business pivot as you might expect from a a growing fintech. Whereas with nationwide and, Metro Bank, there was much more of a sense of you know, big organizations struggling to mobilize against the, the things they're committed to do. So I suppose in some ways, kudos to Onfido for putting their hands up sooner rather than later and not just kind of keeping the money in their account. Um, and hopefully these funds can be redistributed effectively. But it does feel like there are flaws in the process itself when you are asking companies to make very specific product commitments in a very waterfall fashion over an extended timeframe. So
0: That's it, isn't it, Kate? uh, For those of you that haven't been following along at home, uh, there was, of course, post-financial crisis. One of the remedies that the um, bank that was then owned by the UK government, uh, RBS Now West, um, came up with uh, was to, A, it was going to try and split itself in half, and then B, when that didn't work, it was then going to... put up a lot of capital that will be distributed to others for the small business banking sector. And that's what became this fund, which was then awarded in grunt to a lot of businesses, many of which have gone on and done extremely well with it, but some of which have had some trouble and had to give it back. But it does look like some of the trouble has been not keeping to the timeframe that they set out in their original bid. Um, There may have been other troubles as well, but it it does sort of speak to that process, Kate. I think it's a really good point. One of the other stories we didn't have time to cover is, uh, this one comes from TechCrunch, Ramp secures $150 million debit line from Goldman Sachs as the corporate spend market grows. So Ramp is a startup that competes in that corporate spend management market, announced this uh, debt facility from Goldman. Ramp of course, previously raised its $30 million series B in late December, after a $23 million series A in the same year. Um, And of course, the company told TechCrunch it saw a 47% growth in users from November to December, a figure that measures not revenue but transaction volume. Sorry, not users. Um, And, of course, Ramp monetizes off transaction volume. We can assume it's revenue scaled with it. Um, As I speak to folks in the U.S. market, Ramp is rapidly becoming the default for entrepreneurs to manage their everyday expenses with. These products that are not banks but like banks are doing exceptionally well in the U.S., We've had the Ramp team on uh, Home Screen, which is our 11FS Pulse YouTube show. So if you want to learn all about Ramp and some of their interesting integrations, you can find them on 11FS Pulse or, of course, on Home Screen. And on that one in particular, it was one neat feature that we dived into, which is um, they do expense routing through Slack. I'm a small business, I need to approve an expense. Here's a little Slack bot that uh, routes the approval through Slack for you, an app that you probably already have in your toolkit as a small business. Can you imagine which large bank has a Slack integration? It really does speak to the power of innovation and in solving customer problems. So good on those guys, and I hope we see a lot, lot more. Uh, all right, Kate, um, the next one.
1: It's Goldman. Goldman striking again, but in like a slightly different way. So this story comes from This Is Money. So Goldman Sachs' hit Marcus account has reopened in the UK with a top rate of 0.5%. So the Popular Markets account by Goldman Sachs Bank is reopening to new savers from today after an eight-month hiatus. It will pay a top 0.5%. God, I still feel so depressed reading that as as a statement. The average rate on an easy-access account, however, does currently stand at a historic low of 0.17%. This is worth just £17 interest a year on a £10,000 deposit, while Marcus will earn you £50 for the same investment. So when the account launched in September 2018, its top rates attracted savers in their droves. At the time, it was paying 1.05% and has attracted some 500,000 savers with balances of £21 billion to watch out for you know, is whether it's going to still pre-popular despite the reduced rate and especially in an environment ongoing you know, we've got lots of conversation around potentially you know, negative interest rates with UK banks being warned they've got sort of six months to prepare for those so um Yeah, I I suppose I have just applied for a mortgage, so I definitely can't complain about low interest rates. But it it does feel pretty bleak when you see the returns that your average consumer can expect to see on their accounts versus kind of what we, our parents or or ourselves might have grown up with. Um, And it's no sign that this this is going to change soon. I'm sure Marcus will see upticks in their their customer numbers, but I'm actually kind of personally more interested in the impact that this long-term environment has on shaping customer expectations more broadly. So we're seeing customers start to except that you really can't earn a meaningful return on a savings account. So more and more people are starting to think about investments. You know, that space is huge right now. And when customers do use a savings account, I think brands need to be able to provide value to savers in other ways beyond just a rate. So you know, think about how we can actually help customers to set money aside effectively in the first place, for example, which is you know, part of the reason why we've seen such great growth for automated savings apps like Chip in the UK that are really doing interesting things in that space. But yeah, I guess watch out for negative interest rates because things could get a whole lot worse.
0: They could. And of course, Copilot.money in the US and many other apps like it. And Mint has been around for quite some time and is, is looking to do the things, Kate. So it's our time for our and finally story. Um, so an, an anonymous fintech startup called Millions raised $3 million and gives away the cash via Twitter. Users follow the account at Millions, which gives away money to its followers every month. This month, for example, the account is launching its million-dollar sweepstake. Users follow at Millions on Twitter, visit millions.app, and then enter six numbers. If all six numbers match, they win a million dollars. These stunts apparently just... Giving away investor cash are meant to raise brand awareness and acquire customers. The Anonymous Millions co-founder said, if you think about customer acquisition costs, people just give money to Facebook or Instagram or Apple or Google. The money really goes straight to the social network and not the people. The Millions way is really just giving the people the money instead. Uh, We don't need to run advertisement. We're giving money directly to the people and hope they follow our ecosystem, subscribe for updates, and they'll see the future launch. What do you think of this? Ryan, uh, maybe get, get us started.
3: Well, for me, coming from the cryptosphere, it's, an, it's always been an incredibly popular strategy. For example, in 2017 with ICOs, people would airdrop. Tokens um, to raise awareness of their launch. So, so for me, it's interesting. It's almost like a um, crypto strategy, crypto social media strategy, kind of um, leaking into the mainstream. Um, I, they're obviously, it's obviously working. I've seen a lot of people talking about it, and um, when you think about what that kind of large brand awareness advertising campaign would cost, you'd have to say it starts. It's it starts to look quite effective.
0: It doesn't seem that bad when you think about it. But, Kate, I can't get away from the fact that this could be performance art. Um, I was thinking about the, the art collective um, Mischief.xyz, uh, who did Card versus Card, that was the world's first multiplayer fintech, if you recall this one, where um, you had to uh, sort of subscribe to this, uh, this app service in which they were going to be dropping money into one omnibus account, one pooled account. And then it was a race to see who could spend it fast enough. And, of course, it was, it was performance art, so it wasn't a real thing. Is this a real thing? Are they actually doing this? Is this um, the Kanye generation doing marketing?
1: I think yeah. I mean, we we talked on the show previously um, about you know other yeah, marketing tactics that have been used. So I think um, you know we've we've seen lots of different different tactics and. I would probably hesitate. I wouldn't necessarily say this isn't legit. I mean, obviously, they're trying to keep their anonymity, um, but when you kind of look behind the scenes, there there does seem to be some like some some digging. You can do around precise legal details. I I guess it's it seems totally valid as a as a strategy to go after, as long as as they've sort of said themselves. You know, it is a bit of a gamble. You know, whether you can actually. Takes that initial customer interest in free money and translate that through into actually downloading an app or signing up to a wait list uh, and then converting that through into actually using a product or using a service. So, um, but again, you know, I'm, I'm no marketing expert in that sense, but you're probably taking the exact same risk when you're throwing your money at Facebook and Google as well. You know, you're, you're kind of getting your brand out there and then you've still got to make that case to customers to actually use your product. So, um, yeah, I, I don't have any issues with it. Um, it'll just be really interesting to see what what happens.
0: Yeah, the old saying is um, sort of uh, advertising spend is is there to boost when the flywheel is already working, when customer acquisition already is showing you've got product market fit, and you're seeing that, that viral um, piece. And, and this is kind of hacking in another way and hacking attention. And it seems, um, Nick, that sort of m- meme lords and the ability to create memes and, and hack attention, um, certainly one Elon Musk is very good at that. Um, is, is it as a, a marketing strategy that you think we'll see more of?
2: Well, um, I'm glad you mentioned Elon Musk because over the weekend, he tweeted uh, YOLT. Very, very surprisingly for us, uh, he tweeted YOLT and he was not referring to YOLT, the app. He didn't download our app to to manage his billions, but he just tweeted YOLT as, you only live twice. And we've seen a substantial increase of traffic (laughs) to our website. So we're very, very happy that (laughs) Elon Musk tweeted YOLT in a way. So I, I cannot fault him for that, to be honest.
0: You know, um, just as a, as a slight sidebar, uh, Marianne, you'll be familiar with this. There's now a service that allows people to buy tweets um, sort of with non-fungible tokens. Um, and, and those tweets have a certain value and there's a marketplace for them. I wonder how much Elon Musk could sell a tweet for, rian What are your thoughts?
3: I think the sky's the limit. I remember, um, I I thought a while back, there was an app, this amazing app, um, mobile app, where you can cut and paste, where you can sort of photograph the objects around you and kind of cut and paste them into a sort of AR environment. And I remember thinking that that would be such a business opportunity for somebody like Elon Musk to photograph the objects on his desk and make them available as um, kind of like little AR artworks, Backed by NFTs that people could kind of like dot around in their own spaces and so on. Um, this kind of fusion of tokenizing things, celebrity culture, social media, it's just an amazing area of growing value and a really interesting kind of intersection of culture and finance Um, and yeah I could talk about this sort of stuff for hours.
0: Finance is culture and culture is finance and the two have started to come together in a way that they haven't done in previous generations and that is exciting for the future of the world and also um, weird um, in so many ways and it was unexpected um, and maybe that's why we have a podcast um, that's a little bit irreverent and a little bit fun um, and that's why I want to thank our a little bit irreverent a little bit fun guests um, started with Rianne uh, where can people find out more about you?
3: Probably on Twitter is the best medium so that's at Rianne R-H-I-A-N underscore is I-S and I tweet a lot about all things crypto and a few other things.
0: Absolutely and how about yourself
2: Nick? LinkedIn will probably be the best way. And Kate?
3: I like to
1: double with a bit of LinkedIn and a bit of Twitter. Um, so yeah, LinkedIn, just Kate Moody uh, and Twitter at K8 Moody.
0: Thank you so much. As for me, you can find me at SY Taylor on Twitter or Simon Taylor on LinkedIn. And remember, if you like this show, please, please, please just go ahead and subscribe. The button's like right there. Just go ahead and do it. And remember to leave us a review. That helps us out so much. I can't even say. So gratitude in advance. Thank you so much. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, find 11FS on social media or search for Authentic Insider or email podcast at 11FS.com. Hope you have a good rest of your week. Bye for now.